You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 281, ratifying the Articles of Confederation. It's been a while since we discussed the Continental Congress specifically, By this time, when we're talking about early 1781, many of the more memorable delegates had moved on to other duties. Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were in France. Thomas Jefferson was serving as governor of Virginia. Former President Henry Lawrence had left for a diplomatic assignment in the Netherlands, but had been captured by the British. His successor, John Jay, had become a delegate to Spain, and John Hancock had become governor of Massachusetts. Samuel Huntington had become President of Congress in 1779, after Jay left for Spain. Huntington was a lawyer from Connecticut. He had served in the colonial legislatures and the Governor's Council before the war, and had arrived in Congress in 1776 in time to sign the Declaration of Independence. As President, Huntington spent his time corresponding with General Washington, who was constantly asking for more men and supplies. He also corresponded with all of the state governors, asking them for more men and supplies, and usually being turned down. Congress had always struggled with running a government. The government lacked any sort of civilian bureaucracy or an executive branch to execute the laws that Congress passed. Delegates found it impossible to run the government while also trying to legislate. On January 10, 1781, Congress voted to create a Department of Foreign Affairs. A month later, on February 7th, it voted to create Departments of Finance, War, and Marine. Congress would appoint secretaries to run each department and would provide each secretary with a staff. The actual appointments would not take place until many months later. In fact, Congress never got around to appointing someone to run the Marine Committee, which was supposed to be in charge of the Navy, but then it didn't have much of a navy anyway. Congress would appoint Robert Livingston as Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Robert Morris as Secretary of Finance, and General Benjamin Lincoln as Secretary of War. Livingston had left Congress in 1780 to serve as Chancellor of New York, a job which he kept while serving as Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Morris had left Congress in 1778 He had been serving in the Pennsylvania Assembly as head of the Republican faction. General Benjamin Lincoln had been captured at the Siege of Charleston in the spring of 1780. He had been paroled and returned to Philadelphia, but he couldn't serve again in any capacity of the government until he was officially exchanged. In November 1780, he was exchanged for Major General William Phillips, who had been captured at Saratoga three years earlier. So, by 1781, he was able to serve as secretary. 
Uh, Lincoln, however, was still an active-duty officer who sometimes left on military campaigns. And none of these new departments were the first attempts to run the country. The Foreign Affairs Department drew from the Secret Committee, which had been established to correspond with foreign powers and commissioners serving abroad. The committee changed its name to the Committee for Foreign Affairs in 1777, and it also turned over most of its powers to this new executive department in 1781. The Board of War, under General Horatio Gates, had been an effort to organize some better control over the army. But with Gates's reputation in disrepute after Camden, Congress finally decided to shut down that Board of War in February of 1781. Finances had always been a mess in Congress, and Robert Morris had taken primary responsibility for financial affairs early on, but after Congress questioned whether he was mixing his work too much with his private businesses, Morris just departed Congress in 1778 and left the job to others. Congress reorganized its financial committees three times over the next three years before finally creating the Department of Finance and calling back Morris to run it. Now, for all the new departments, there were no fixed terms. Although Congress had the power to remove a secretary, the delegates never did. Each of the secretaries served until they resigned. But the creation of these departments in early 1781, in my view, really marks the first attempt to create an executive branch of government in the United States. The other really big thing that happened around this same time was the final ratification of the Articles of Confederation. Now, you may recall that Congress had sent the Articles to the states for approval way back in 1777. Within a few months of that, most of the states had ratified them but the Articles could not take effect until all 13 states had ratified. Now, keep in mind that the Continental Congress really had no governing document until the Articles were ratified. The delegates only really had any authority to do anything because the states allowed it. Even if a majority of states agreed to something, Congress could not force any particular state to do anything if it didn't want to. Any rules that Congress had in place to run itself were established by the delegates themselves and could be changed at any time. They were literally making it up as they went along. By the end of 1778, all of the states but two had ratified the Articles. Delaware waited until February of 1779 to ratify. Now that left Maryland as the final holdout through the rest of 1779, 1780, and into 1781. Officials in Maryland did not have any specific objection to the Articles themselves. They wanted a decision on Western land claims before they would approve the Articles. Maryland did not have any Western land claims of its own. Its concern was primarily its neighbor, Virginia. At the time, Virginia laid claims to what is today West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and parts of Minnesota and even Canada. There were other states that held conflicting claims to some of this same land, but Virginia's claims, if recognized, would probably have given it a larger landmass than all the other states combined. Maryland felt threatened by this massive empire to its south and west. It wanted Congress to take control of most of these western lands and ensure that they would be broken up into other states. 
Congress could use these lands to raise funds and also to make good on the land-grant promises that it had made to veterans. It would also prevent the states from going to war with one another to enforce their conflicting land claims. Virginia, understandably, resisted giving up all of its claims to western lands. Congress passed several resolutions calling on all states to give up their claims to western lands and turn them over to Congress. It wasn't until January of 1781 that Virginia agreed to cede most of its western land to Congress. Among its conditions for doing so was that the lands be held by Congress and could not be claimed by any other existing state, and that the land eventually be developed into new independent states that would join the Union. With that agreement, Virginia shrunk its borders to what is today Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. With that issue of Western lands finally resolved, Maryland became the 13th state to ratify the Articles in February of 1781, finally allowing them to take effect after three and a half years. Congress celebrated the adoption of the Articles on March 1st. Even as they celebrated, though, many delegates were already commenting that the Articles were inadequate to running an effective government. Much of the Articles were also rather vague. For example, it didn't specify what constituted a quorum. Initially, the delegates set a quorum at nine states, but later dropped it to seven for ordinary business. There was also a question about terms of service. The articles imposed term limits. A president could only serve for one year. Delegates could only serve for three out of every six years. But it was unclear if this was retroactive. President Huntington had already been in office for more than a year, and many delegates had been in Congress for well over three years. Congress decided that the clock on term limits only started on March 1st and would not apply retroactively to prior service. The Articles also required that each state have at least two delegates in their state delegation. Some states had only one delegate present, meaning they could no longer vote until their states sent a second delegate. Debate on these issues often got heated. In March, French Minister Luzerne reported to officials, including Minister Vergen back in France, that two delegates had attacked each other on the floor of the State House with canes. Delegates in Congress were divided on many issues. Samuel Adams became a leading opponent of giving any new powers to Congress. He wanted power to remain with the states. Other members, however, continued to argue for new powers. A new freshman delegate from Virginia, James Madison, first came to Congress in 1780 at the age of 29. He began fighting for increased powers for Congress, including the ability to coerce states into doing things involuntarily and the ability of Congress to collect tariffs without the states in order to help fund the war effort. Finances, of course, were the largest problem. In January, Congress received word that large segments of the Continental Army were in mutiny, in part over Congress's failure to keep its promises of pay to the soldiers. Inflation had reached crazy proportions. Some reports of it taking 500 Continental dollars to exchange for one dollar of hard money. Congress began to back away from its requirement that everyone must accept Continental dollars for the payments of debts. Debtors were finding they could legally shed their debts by purchasing a few Continental dollars for pennies and then using those dollars to pay off their debts. 
given the financial crisis, Congress prioritized getting Robert Morris into his new position as Secretary of Finance, finalizing his appointment in March 1781. By May, Morris took office and within days presented his plan for a national bank. It's important to remember that there were no banks in America up until this time. All financial transactions were performed by private merchants. Even Morris's proposed Bank of North America would not be for private depositors. Britain had the Bank of England, which had become critical to that government's ability to borrow and maintain credit. America needed something similar. It would take nearly a year to get the bank off the ground and running, at least the plans were beginning to form that would put some institutional controls over the nation's finances. Even the bank's organization did not take the place of actually having some money. Congress was still pinning all its hopes on loans or grants from Europe. At some point, Congress was going to have to pay back that debt. Now, creating the bank showed potential creditors that Congress was building some sort of infrastructure to handle that problem, but it still really wasn't a solution to the debt. Congress would charter the bank in 1781 based on Morris's proposal. The bank would not open until 1782. Of course, a bank at this time needed to have some specie, that is gold or silver, in order to get people to trust its banknotes. To fund the bank, Morris redirected a silver shipment from France that was being sent to Congress. Morris then used that silver to issue loans to Congress to back additional currency. Private investors were also offered shares in the bank, provided they could buy them with gold or silver. The basic idea of the bank is that it would offer a stable form of currency. Unlike Congress, which just printed more money whenever it needed it, the bank would use standards of the day to issue a limited amount of banknotes based on the amount of gold and silver that it had in reserve. As long as the public retained confidence in the bank's practices, the currency should retain its value. The proposal was controversial from the beginning. James Madison, who was a strong supporter of a stronger Congress, was not a fan of the bank, and he in fact led the opposition to the bank in Congress, arguing that Congress did not have the authority under the Articles of Confederation to create such a bank. In the end, Congress approved the bank with only seven states voting in favor of it. Several of the states, including Morris's home state of Pennsylvania, were divided and could not cast a vote either way. Through the remainder of the war, Morris and the bank would do their best to stabilize the currency and finance the war. But the overwhelming debt and the lack of any income from taxes made his job more damage control than effective policymaking. Congress's lack of money and inability to implement a stable financial system was nothing new. Conditions had only steadily worsened since the war began. Congress's inability to repay debts had some pretty drastic consequences. In the last few months of 1780, we'd seen the defection of General Benedict Arnold, based primarily on Congress's refusal to pay him for the campaigns he had funded out of his own pocket. As the new year 1781 opened with a large portion of the Continental Army mutinying, because Congress could not live up to its agreements to provide pay bounties to soldiers or even provide basic food, clothing, and shelter. The entire government seemed to be on the verge of collapse. 
Congress could not agree on any effective solution to prevent it other than to continue to deny the reality of things and hope for the best. Now, one leader who seems to have lost hope was Silas Dean. As an original delegate from Connecticut, Dean had been a committed patriot and knew well how Congress operated. Congress had sent him to France very early in the war, long before Franklin and Adams made the trip. Dean had managed to pull off some amazing loans and assistance from France thanks to officials who were amenable to supporting the effort. In doing so, though, Dean had spent a great deal of his own money to support himself and what amounted to the entire American diplomatic mission in Europe. However, thanks to lies from fellow counselor Arthur Lee, Congress turned against Dean. It ended up refusing to repay Dean for his debts and even recalled him to America to answer questions about whether he had profited from his financial transactions in France. When Dean returned to America back in 1778 to settle the matter with Congress, he found that Congress was unwilling to do anything but stretch out the hearings and bury Dean in unsupported innuendo. Dean's understandable frustration only got him in more trouble for badmouthing Congress. Eventually, Dean got approval to return to Europe, at his own expense, in order to get more accurate records of his financial transactions. But since these transactions were with the French government, and French leaders did not want to release the records, they kept Dean on ice as well, unwilling to give him the information he needed. Congress had promised to send an auditor to France to look into the finances, but it never got around to sending anyone. On the verge of bankruptcy, heavily in debt, and no longer even having the promise of pay from Congress, Dean was forced to leave Paris and took up residence in Ghent, in modern-day Belgium, where he could find living much cheaper. And during this time, Dean continued his correspondence with friendly members of Congress, French officials, as well as friends and family in America. Understandably, many of these letters were critical of Congress and its treatment of him. He was also critical of France, which by this time seemed unwilling to help him and had ended much of its financial aid to the Continentals since it was fighting its own war by this time. In May, Dean wrote his friend and former Pennsylvania delegate to Congress, James Wilson. Dean vented his frustration and was particularly critical of France, who he believed would throw American independence under the bus if it suited its own interests. He wrote to others, including General Samuel Parsons, that Britain seemed more powerful and united than ever, and that the British Navy was dominating France and Spain. Over the course of the summer, Dean wrote a stream of candid and pessimistic letters to those back home. To Delegate William Dewar, Dean wrote, I know and confess the difficult situation of Congress, and I know also what I am sure they will not confess, that they have brought themselves into it by their cabals, their ignorance, and their mismanagement. He went on in the letter to suggest that perhaps Congress should give up the idea of independence. Let them weigh fairly the probable chances for their succeeding to establish independent sovereignty, and if they find the probability against it, let them honestly confess it and put an end to the calamities of our country by a peace on honorable terms. Dean wrote numerous letters, the themes of which were that Congress was incompetent and corrupt, it had bankrupted the economy, 
and put the country on the verge of anarchy. Britain was winning the war militarily and would continue to drive America into the ground. France was going to ditch America as soon as it decided it was in its own best interests. France had always been and remained a monarchy that does not respect the liberties of its people. Britain might have its faults, but at least it had a history of respecting certain individual rights, unlike the rest of Europe. Perhaps it was time to consider peace negotiations with Britain that would give up on independence if America could get certain other assurances. As I said, it's certainly understandable why Dean felt as he did. Congress had screwed him over multiple times. He saw the incompetence, the willful injustice, and the factionalization of Congress firsthand. He was not only being shut out of most courts of Europe, but he saw other active American diplomats were as well. He was reading the British newspapers that reported the capture of Charleston, the British victory at Camden, and announcements that a British victory was close at hand. Now, sadly for Dean, these letters fell into British hands and were soon published in newspapers. Dean's view that the American cause was lost and that it should give up on his dream of independence became public in America at the worst time, shortly after the victory at Yorktown in the fall of 1781. The result was that Dean was seen as a defeatist and someone who was spouting the Tory line. Some even accused him of becoming a British spy. Now, while there's no evidence that Dean had changed sides or even had communications with British officials, his own words showed that he had given up on the cause of a free and independent America. The result was that Dean's reputation plummeted even further and would never recover. Congress, despite its reputation among a growing number of critics, continued to do whatever it could to continue the war effort. Now, next week, the war continues in Virginia as General Lafayette leads an army against British General Benedict Arnold. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, Anthony McGinnis, Greg Pusak, and 10 Crucial Days. I'm also grateful to Jesse Fernandez, who upgraded to Privy Council from Standard Bearer on Patreon last month, and to Adam Cross and Scott Rainierson, who joined at the Standard Bearer level. Thanks also to David Rosner and Colin O'Connor for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. 
If you've been listening to this podcast for some time, you know that in addition to this podcast, I'm very involved in the American Revolution Roundtables. I've been running a group in South Jersey for many years, and I've been thinking about taking this online. I still haven't finalized my plans, but I'm thinking about holding a live monthly Zoom event where people can come and ask questions. In the past, our Zoom meetings have had a guest speaker who gives a long presentation on a topic. I might do some of that, but I'm also thinking about having a more interactive experience where we just get together and talk about a particular subject. As I said, I'm still trying to work out the details, but if any of you have any thoughts on what direction this should take, please let me know. Should we have speakers and book authors, or should we just talk amongst ourselves? Should we follow a pattern from one meeting to the next, or just pick whatever topic interests us? Let me know what you think. You can always reach me via email, or you can reach me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you like. So, today's episode highlights Congress's attempts to find a workable and acceptable way to run the government and continue the war. The establishment of various departments in 1781 was a big step toward adopting an executive branch, something that would not take place until the adoption of the Constitution nearly a decade later. What was really frustrating was how long Maryland held up the whole process of adopting the Articles of Confederation. I suppose politicians digging in their heels and refusing to compromise is nothing new, but when a war is raging, you'd think they would be a bit more amenable to a compromise solution. What, in the end, really got Virginia and Maryland to compromise on that western lands question, which led to final ratification, was the fact that the war was moving into both of their states. Virginia needed the support of other states to fight off the British invasion. Otherwise, they might be sucked into the British Southern strategy of forcing the Southern states back into colonies under Crown rule. It was only then that they decided that giving up its Western land claims was a price worth paying. Maryland also felt threatened and needed to do something. Maryland delegates had begged the French minister in Philadelphia, Minister Luzerne, for more French loans for the Continental Army. And Luzerne specifically told Maryland that ratifying the Articles would go a long way toward getting France to provide more loans. Maryland was still dragging its feet, waiting for Virginia's concessions to be implemented, but the pressure of British soldiers in the Chesapeake focused their attention on the need to move this along. As I said, the French were putting pressure on Congress to get these Articles in place. They could do that because France had money and Congress desperately needed it. That was also the main motivation behind Robert Morris's new proposed Bank of North America. Even after its establishment, the bank would run into all sorts of problems. Much of it was due to the fact that it couldn't get any money. Beyond that, many in Congress still objected to the bank as being beyond the power of Congress. Plantation owners were highly skeptical of banks. Their power and wealth came from land. Setting up a landless center of wealth and power was seen as a threat by many of them. Others also claimed that Morris and his friends were just enriching themselves and were jealous that wealth might flow to these men personally when they were trying to act out of the public good. Now, eventually, the bank would lose its charter, and its charter would eventually move under the state of Pennsylvania. 
The new federal government didn't do away with banks altogether, though. It created the Bank of the United States, the first bank and then later the second bank. These were similarly controversial and had a rocky road for many decades. The Bank of North America, though, did remain a bank, even if it wasn't a federal bank anymore. And it remained through all of U.S. history and through a series of mergers in the 20th century, ended up becoming part of Wells Fargo Bank today. So the bank lasted way longer than the Articles of Confederation did. My book recommendation this week is a more detailed look at the process that led to the adoption of the Articles of Confederation. The book is entitled The Articles of Confederation, An Interpretation of the Social Constitutional History of the American Revolution, 1774 to 1781, by Merrill Jensen. The book is about 300 pages. It goes through the revolutionary period up until Maryland's ratification and takes a closer look at the politics behind everything. The book is pretty old. It was first published in 1948, and the author, Merrill Jensen, was a professor at the University of Wisconsin for many years. I suspect it was used primarily as a book for college students, but I think it is an interesting read if you want to learn about the politics of this time. My online recommendation is a website at the University of Michigan. It contains the full text and all the letters from Silas Dean that the British newspapers published in 1781. Uh, you can view these letters elsewhere. There's a complete works of Silas Dean's correspondence. But I like this site because it has a good organized set of just the letters that were published and that became the subject of the Silas Dean controversy. Britain saw the letters as proof that even the American leadership was giving up on this whole independence thing and that Britain would soon be victorious. In truth, the revelations did nothing but tank Silas Dean's already damaged reputation in America. I also find them interesting, though, since it shows how leaders in Europe viewed the war, since Dean was basically getting his views from speaking with others in Europe. As always, I've included links to this on my blog and website. Hope you'll check them out. My question this week asks, why did Britain lose its American colonies? What could she have done differently that might have changed things for her side pre-revolution? Well, keeping the American colonies would have been easy. Just don't try to levy taxes. The colonies were very happily living under British rule until Parliament tried to levy direct taxes on them beginning in the 1760s. The argument against that was that Britain could not have run the colonies as a loss forever, and they were going to have to get some money at some point. There were costs related to military defense and other aspects of government, and those things required funding. I would still argue there was no need to levy direct taxes. Parliament or the Privy Council could have directed colonial legislatures to come up with money for things, such as paying for regulars stationed within the colony. Now, there had to be some limits on how much they could ask for, but if they were willing to work out a compromise with the colonial legislatures, I think something could have been worked out. Britain also benefited greatly from the trade rules that it forced colonists to trade when they wanted to trade essentially with Britain. They weren't allowed to trade with much of anyone else. This gave Britain a monopoly over all their trade goods, and that monopoly was hugely profitable to Britain. And the British government could have benefited from those profits indirectly. And there were already plenty of indirect taxes. 
For example, prior to passage of the Tea Act, Britain charged huge taxes in Britain before that tea was shipped to the colonies. The cost was packed into the overall cost of the tea. So Britain could have continued to profit from the colonies in those ways and kept them happy for many more years. Now, as I've said before, separation was probably inevitable given the growing population and economic strength of the American colonies relative to Britain itself. But the colonies could have remained in place for much longer, well into the 19th century. And when the break finally came, it could have been much more amicable, much like Canada, and done on much more favorable terms to Britain's foreign interests. Britain simply needed to use a lighter touch and not push the idea of direct taxation. In hindsight, at least, we know that their failure to do this was a big mistake. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.